Hello and welcome to this week's episode of I Was Going To Podcast. My name is Stuart MacDonald and my co-host is Colin Cameron. The podcast is part of the I Was Going To Charity and each week we interview successful people to find out how they achieved their success. This information from the podcast is then edited into what we call Golden Nuggets and used within presentations to inform and inspire young people. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of I Was Going To Podcast. This week's guest is Andy Colhoun, CEO of St Babcocks. Andy Colhoun, welcome to the I Was Going To Podcast. It's a pleasure to meet you this morning. Uh, welcome, Stuart, and thanks very much for the, the opportunity to, to, to be on your podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure, absolute pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to this, Andy, because uh, being an ex-Babcocks employee and having 13 pleasurable years uh, working within Babcocks, I'm sure we'll have uh, many a story to tell to uh, one another about this. But uh, the podcast all about yourself, Andy. And uh, the first question, I say it every week, I don't want to ask this, but the pandemic's here with us and it's still with us after 18 months. And the first question is, how have you found this unusual time and what have you been doing to keep yourself busy? Um, I, I guess there's probably two parts to that question, sure. I mean, I think, first of all, from a business perspective, and then I'll maybe talk about it on a personal level. Um, the pandemic probably impacted us at the same time as it did everyone, you know, March 2019. Um, we were starting to see a lot of customers um, delay projects, but not necessarily cancel projects, which was good. Um, you know, we're, we're the kind of company that works in power stations, refineries, petrochem sites and so forth, what you might call UK critical infrastructure. And it's not always within the gift of the customer to cancel, you know, important um, important maintenance work in these facilities. Um, so that was fortunate for us to some extent. Um, well, we're still very busy, you know. Um, you know, a lot of the time at the start was really putting in place the, the working from home arrangements, um, you know, making sure that we had a, a safe environment for the, the, the people that did have to come into the office because of their jobs and making sure we had the right support for the people that were, were working from home. So so during the, the pandemic, you know, we've been relatively busy um, with a really good um year in 2020 from a financial perspective we're probably one of the few companies that actually had a slightly uh, we, we, we did slightly better than break even so we made a small and uh, positive ebit contribution Great. which um which i think when you look at many of our competitors our suppliers our, our customers you know many failed not to do that so we, we, we worked really hard to, to, to achieve that position in 2020. And what we've seen in 2021 is a lot of that work that was delayed now being com- coming forward into 21 and, and, and early 22. So we've got to another busy start to this year. So from a business perspective, I'd say that myself and my team have been, have been really quite busy just to make sure that we, we keep the, the business turning over. And on and, and a personal level, um, I can't complain too much. I've got to be objective about it. It hasn't been too bad for me. You know, the lockdown, the travel restrictions, um, it's afforded me more quality time to spend at home with my family. Um, you know, I always knew my daughter was going to leave home this year. She'd planned to leave in July. She's taken up a position with a law firm. And um, and I feel that I get two years of quality time with my daughter that I might not have got otherwise. So. Yeah. 
it's allowed me to, you know, spend some good time with my family, spend a bit more time in my garden than, than I would normally. I don't consider myself a gardener, but I've learned to enjoy it actually over yeah. lockdown. So um, I, can't, I can't grumble. And it's interesting, Andy, how many people just reflect on that one piece and it's bringing it back to family. Yeah. Uh, I remember Ricky uh, Nichols said exactly the same thing, that uh, he got what he suggested was an extra two years from his family. And he said it was just a, a fantastic opportunity for them to spend some quality time together. So it's, it's a nice that's come out of something which hasn't been very pleasant to, to live through. But uh, but we want to move on from the pandemic side of things and, and hear a bit more about yourself, Andy, if we can. And you sure. were born and educated in Scotland. I just wonder if you could tell us a wee bit more about this time, if you like, and your, your educational experience. Yeah, yes. Um, I was born in Seatill Road in Paisley. And I lived there with my parents and my younger brother. Um, stayed there to quite a young age, probably four or five. We moved up to Foxbar. We moved into Marie Road in Foxbar, into a, a tenement block um, at the time. My dad worked in the, the Roots Car Factory um, at Linwood. He was a a spot welder working on the, on the line. Uh, my mother, she looked after myself and my brother. She did some part-time cleaning work at the, at the local primary school. You know, we, we lived in a, a tenement building in a council estate, but I'll be honest, I've got nothing but happy memories, you know, of, of my, my younger years. Yeah. From an education perspective, you know, I went to Breadland Primary School, um, which was right at the top of Marie Road. Um, really good school. I'm still fortunate enough today that I support Breadland Primary School through their STEM activity, and um, I pay fairly regular visits back there and work with the, with the headmaster on some of their um, STEM activities, which is really good. It's always good to go back. Um, yeah. It's one of the few schools in Renfrewshire that hasn't been knocked down and rebuilt, so when I go back in there, the memories come flooding back, you know. Right. Same same classrooms, the same gym hall, you know. I, I feel as if, um, uh, you know, the, the, I, 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 I'd know how to navigate that building blindfolded almost <laughs> all those years. So um, it was good. From primary school, you would go to secondary school? I did. I went to Camp Hill School and for maybe some of the the younger viewers of the podcast, um, that was that's now called Glenifer School. And... Um, that was a, a really good experience. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that um, I was a stellar student. Um, I think I worked hard. Um, my parents instilled a, a strong work ethic in me, but um, I was as much interested in the sporting activities and the social side of school as I was my studies. Um, I think I did reasonably well. Um, I do remember being influenced at a fairly young age in which direction I was going to go. I mean, I think I said my dad worked in the Roots Car Factory and I remember he took us to an open day. And um, at that open day, we, we got to see this presentation on a gearbox. And it was one of these gearboxes where they'd cut away the, the casing and you could see the, the gears and the shafts. And we got a bit of a, a, a presentation from this guy, his engineer, and... Um, and I remember that sort of planted a seed in my brain, you know, from that point in time, I knew that I wanted to be an engineer. And I don't think I really knew at that time what an engineer was, you know. Um, but, you know, it, it sort of reflected in the subjects I studied, you know, I studied physics, maths, technical drawing, engineering, science. Um, and that kind of shaped, I guess, the direction that I was going to, to go in. 
But I was equally involved in other activities. I mean, enjoyed athletics and football. And the boys' brigade played a big part in my life. I was part of the, the 20th Paisley. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I stayed in the boys' brigade from from probably about four or five when you joined Life Boys and right through to about 19. And, and I think um, I think that helped shape me as well. You know, the Boys Brigade teaches you a lot about yourself and a lot about teamwork. And and um, I think it was a, a really good education for me. Yeah, I, could, I couldn't agree with you more. There's a couple of points that I would like to uh, make with regards to that. It's funny, I, I grew up with two older brothers and there was five years uh, difference between us. And uh, I remember my father saying to uh, 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 my elder brother, oh, you want a motorbike, do you? I'll get you a motorbike. My father came back one night and he said, I've got you a motorbike. It's outside for you. And my brother went to the front door and he looked out and he couldn't see a motorbike, but there was a box sitting in the front step. And my, 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 my brother said, Where, where's the motorbike? And he says, it's in the box. You have to build this motorbike. And that was just what you were talking about with regards to the, the your introduction to a gearbox. That was his introduction to a motorbike. And I've got to say, I stood beside him for all the time when we assembled that. And it was, it was thanks to my dad. He was one of those engineers that was just a true engineer. Tremendous skills to watch. And I suppose that rubbed off. And that was one of the reasons why, like you, that it inspired me to, 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 uh, to join Babcocks in the first place. So it was interesting that you, you, you mentioned that. And also the parallels are, are there. Uh, I, I, we were in the 44th oh. uh, Boys Brigade in Cardonald. And uh, the discipline, uh, people talk about discipline as being a negative thing. I think the the discipline that it, we get installed as young boys was just a tremendous thing. It, but but Andy, so developing on that, did you get any career advice, or was the, the the seed planted from your father's perspective that you wanted to do engineering? No, not not really. I wouldn't say so. You know, the school wasn't great uh, giving career advice, in my opinion, back then. And, you know, my parents, you know, they'd never gone to university either. And, you know, no one in the family had. So for my mum and dad, the natural step for me was an apprenticeship scheme. And that's what we'd always talked about. You know, and, and I never questioned it, to be honest. Um, I didn't consider anything else. I just assumed that was the normal path, you know, and that was what success looked like. You, you worked hard at school and you picked up a, a good apprenticeship. You know, my father was... My father didn't have an apprenticeship, you know, he was he was a labourer, um, but he was one of the guys that had to leave school at a really young age. Um, he would have he would have really enjoyed an apprenticeship, he would have done well, and I think he would love to have had a trade. And um, that's what he wanted for me, and, and that's what I wanted for myself, you know, I wanted to be an apprentice. So there's never any question, it was, that's, that's what it was always going to be. Yeah. And at that time, um, you know, that would have been the mid-80s. For kids that come out of school with some good O-levels and good hires, you know, you know, th- th- there was a lot to choose from. I mean, I think I get something like 10 or 12 offers at the time, you know, right. from Rolls-Royce, from British Aerospace, from Babcock, um, Castle Milk Precision Engineering. I-, I can remember most of them now. Um, and th- they were all, you know, there was... Lots of opportunity at that point in time. Yeah. So that's just how naturally I ended up in engineering. And your first employment that you started as an apprentice within Babcock? 
It is, yeah. I mean, I've been a, a basically funny school, if you like, um, and, um, you know, at the end of the, the fifth year. And, um, yep, yeah, I think it was the 12th of August, 1985, I started in Babcock. And, um, I mean, I'll be honest, starting Babcock, because at the time, um, they were paying about £5, <laughs> £5 a month more than anybody else at the time. So, um, so, so that, that helped sway my decision, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I still uh, remember my first paycheck from Babcock's and it was for £132 and I still have it upstairs in the loft somewhere. So it's, and I didn't know what I was going to do with that amount of money. It was so much money and that was just for two weeks as well, the first two weeks. When you started as an apprentice uh, uh, within Babcock's, what was your first thoughts transitioning between school and going into heavy engineering in Babcock's? When I first joined Babcock, it was it was it was a global engineering and construction business. It had interests all over the world, but for me as a youngster, um, it was just a local employer. Um, you know, when I stayed at the top of Fox Bar, I used to jump in the bus. Um, I remember me standing at that bus stop for the first morning, waiting in the Babcock bus to pick me up, and um, you know, one of my best mates was standing next to me, and um, I said, "Where are you going?" And he said, "I'm starting in Babcock." So am I. <laughs> and um, you know, he's still with Babcock today, so the two of have worked in there for, for 37 years now. Fantastic. Um, it's fantastic, yes. But it's also, you know, probably, you know, I think it is Remshire's largest employer and one of its oldest. We celebrated our 130-year anniversary in July there. Fantastic. So it's really an integral part of Renfrew and the local community, and I think it's it's fair to say Renfrew wouldn't be Renfrew as we know it without Babcock and, and vice versa. And um, I think almost everyone in Renfrewshire knows somebody who's worked there. And we spoke earlier, Stuart, and yeah. I know you've worked there and a lot of your friends and colleagues have worked there. And everybody, everybody knows someone. It's amazing, Andy. I have, throughout my career, spent a lot of time travelling. And it's incredible just how many people that you walk into an industry, you're talking to somebody and somebody out of the blue will catch your eye and it's an ex-Babcocks employee. Yeah. And it's amazing the arms and legs that Babcocks has, has had to the training that they had and uh, the way in which the camaraderie uh, of of the boys, uh, we again were speaking of uh, of of just before the podcast here, Andy. That uh, forty years, it was nineteen eighty one. We started. We've just celebrated our fortieth anniversary, and we're all still great friends, and they've all done very well. So the training was incredible. I've got to say, uh, what was your your own opinions of the the training school? If you can take us back to that, Andy. Yeah, yeah. I was going to just get back to your previous question. You know, what was the transition like first? And and um, you know, Babcock made it easy to transition from school into heavy industry. And you'll recall from your own experience, Stuart. You know, everything was very well planned and very very well thought out. You know, I remember when you walked in day one, you get marched for your medical, and then you get marched to the bank to open up a bank account, and then you had to sign on to your pension, and you know, then you get. You know, you get interviewed by the doctor and there was various um, various things you went through and everything was laid on. It was a very seamless, well-coordinated, um, um, you know, induction to, to the company, of you like. And um, 
the, the fact that you were all in a training school as well, um, it wasn't so different from a school environment. You were in a you were in a training school with a lot of you know a lot of youngsters. Um, you know there was probably four years worth of kids in the training school at any one time. So the transition was made very easy, I think. Um, and when we talk about the quality of training that Babcock provided back then, I, I like to think that we still provide that same level of training today. You know, because, I think because I've come through that route, I'm very passionate about training and I'm very passionate about apprenticeships. And, you know, our apprenticeship training uh, facility is now based in Tipton, um, down in Birmingham area. And... Um, I still believe it's one of the best training centres in the, in the country, and you know, absolutely. And um, a lot of the kids that go through that, you know, comment um, on the quality of um, the, the training and the training providers that, that we had down there. No, it's, it was it was exceptional. The training school, the 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 training manager again. We spoke about this just previously, and the training manager was ahead of his 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 time with regards to uh, trying to implement uh, a, a multidisciplined technician apprenticeship when we first started in 1981 and that was incredibly difficult because of the demarcation levels that he had to put up with but he and uh, the Reed Care College as it was at that point yeah. uh, had uh, pulled a, a, a fantastic training together and uh, the, the, the four other chaps that I've interviewed that, 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 that uh, started at the same time, we recall our training up at the Reed Care and between the, 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 the because we, we were working, uh, uh, it wasn't day release, it was uh, three weeks up at the training school and three weeks up at uh, the, the college. And it was just exceptional that, 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 that as you called it, it was seamless, the, the training. But even further than that, Andy, and I would like to sort of just take it on. One of the other things that, that we were talking about recently um, to, to the guys that I'd started with, and that was when we came out of the training school, the training continued and we had opportunities to get tasters of different departments. And that was a hugely important part within the training. And each of us, when we were discussing it, that it was just so important to be able to establish this is where I see my career moving and I really have a passion for this direction. What, what, what was your own experience with regards to that when you moved from the training school, uh, Andy? Yeah, so after I completed my apprenticeship, I was sent to work in the factory. So the Renfrew factory at that time was um, was very busy. You know, there's probably about three to 4,000 tradesmen um, across the factory. And at that point in time, we um, we we basically designed, fabricated, constructed, you know, coal-fired power stations for, for all over the world and in every part of those. Um, and it was a magical time in my career. It gave me a real insight into what industry must have been like in the west of Scotland in its heyday. Yeah. You know, and it was a fabulous learning experience for, for any youngster starting their career. And as you say, Stuart, I did a number of um, roles within the factory, you know, just experiencing different things. Um, from, you know, planning, uh, production planning, technical engineering support, as they called it, factory management. Um, so I, I did get a, a real, um, you know, rounded, rounded sort of post-apprenticeship training experience, which um, I just loved it. I think any young man, you know, working in heavy engineering in its heyday can't be, can't be failed to be, 
you know, impressed by it. It was like um, just a big mechanical set. And I stayed in the factory for about 10 years. You know, I, I learned my trade and I steadily progressed my career. Um, I learned a lot of things in the factory about manufacturing processes, planning, cost control. I also learned how power stations worked and how they were constructed. And this, this served me later, uh, well later, as my career developed. Yeah. As you say, you know, Babcock's always been a company that's invested in its people. Um, and our training is, I think it's the best in the world. So when I wanted to further my education, and I'll, I'll tell you a story, but when I first joined um, the company as an apprentice, I remember within the first six months, been taken into the training manager's, manager's office, a guy called John Higgins. And um, I remember him saying to me, if you work really hard, son, one day you could be a charge hand, right? <laughs> uh, no disrespect, but w- w- when I started, I didn't realise there was any glass ceilings. I, I started as an apprentice and I thought I can run this company. I just yeah. didn't believe for a minute there was any reason why I couldn't. And... Um, and Mr. Higgins at that time sort of moderated my expectations by explaining, look, son, you're a technical apprentice, there's craft apprentices and then there's graduates. And the graduates cut around in the white overalls where we were in the blues. And then I realised these guys have all been to university and if I want to progress my career, I need to go to university. I didn't think um, it was necessary, but it wasn't going to happen without it. And he made that clear to me. So when I did want to further my education, um, I'd finished my my HNC, I think it was at the time. Um, I was ready to leave the business. I was because I I knew that if I wanted to get on, I had to get a degree. Um, But Babcock were really quite sponsored me through university. They allowed me to study mechanical electronics. And, And gaining that degree was a real turning point for me. And it allowed me to then take on a management position within the factory. And that's something that I really enjoyed. And that's when I started to learn how to manage people. And that that was really good up until about the mid-90s. And it was becoming clear then that manufacturing a thermal power plant equipment in the UK was was in serious decline. You know, countries like China had been heavily investing in their own boiler-making factories. And and Babcock just couldn't compete. and during this time, the business had been slowly transitioning itself from a manufacturer of original equipment into a, into a project and service business. Um, and the focus of the company was moving more from moving more to plant upgrade and maintenance of existing coal plant within the UK fleet and overseas customers. And, um, and it was at that time I had to leave the factory. It was a it was a decision I had to make. The factory was going to close. And either I had to leave the business or I had to leave the factory. So I took up a role within a project management office. And um, that's when I started, you know, my project management career. And I was looking after small projects where we would provide, you know, replacement or upgraded components to, to power stations across the UK. And that was another great learning experience for any young project manager. I was now customer facing I had leadership responsibility, I was managing budgets, I was delivering profit. I had opportunity to travel now, you know, I could travel across the UK, I've worked in Europe, I've worked in the US, and and also became a, a member of the Association of Project Managers at this time. And, and I guess that was um, my first real taste of, of management. 
I didn't realise that was your route. I was working down at the research and it was Terry McAleer that had, yeah, really? I, I, I had suggested that there was an opportunity up in project management. Uh, and I was down doing the, the NDT, automatic NDT on the, the, the Trident submarine uh, boilers. Yeah. And that was fascinating stuff. It was brilliant. Neil Harper was down at that point. It was a great team that we had. And uh, Brian McEachney was looking for, for someone and I, I, I get the call up and it, actually the transition was interesting because it was exactly what you said that uh, he made it clear that his insurance policy that he gave all his clients was that all his staff within project management had a degree yeah. or a, a higher level qualification and at, at that that's when he said you either come up uh, and we'll sponsor you or you don't come up <laughs> and uh, that was when I uh, took on my, my five-year degree. So I, I was fortunate enough to get sponsored by Babcocks. Uh, and in conjunction with that, it's amazing just how much, as you've said, that uh, I uh, was fortunate enough when we left the training school to, to get out to all the power stations. We were involved in the commissioning of uh, Drax, which was an incredible site. It was huge. It was just uh, a different world, but an amazing to be able to get that indicator of what you've seen in drawings and photographs, to be able to see the size, scale and immensity of the power station. And then we spent a lot of time in Thought Mars, coal fire power station, nuclear power station at uh, uh, in Hartlepool. And that has always stayed with me, I've got to say. So from your own perspective, that must have been an incredibly uh, important time for your, your career progression, uh, Andy. It was, it was. I mean, you know, standing in the, inside the furnace of a, a, one of the 660 megawatt Drax units is incredible. It's probably something that very few people get to experience. And, you know, when you, you when you understand the immensity of these power stations um you know you, you really feel humbled by it and you know the project management taught me a, a number of a number of key key things and key skills that have, that have sort of been good for me through my whole career you know how to deal with um people how to deal with customers how to you know set deadlines manage projects manage costs manage risks opportunities and so forth but do it in a a huge scale, you know. Um, you know, some of these projects that we take on are, 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 are massive from a cost, from a schedule, from a quality perspective. So, no, it's been a really, it was a really important part of my life and part of my career, um, and it was quite pivotal as well. Um, it, my view is in life, as in business, time means everything um, to some extent, and. Almost as soon as um, I'd got my degree, I needed, I, I realised I needed to get an MBA to take the next step in my career. And the company, again, were, were, were good enough to, to sponsor me. And when I talk about timing, um, almost immediately after finishing that MBA, um, Babcock secured a, a major project at Sellafield. For those that aren't aware, Sellafield's um, the UK's um, nuclear waste repository. It's where we store and treat our low-level, medium-level and highly radioactive waste. It's uh, the primary site for, for treating all of that legacy waste going back to the, the 1950s. And this particular project at the time, um, in line with the government guidelines, the project director for this 
this um, particular opportunity had to meet fairly stringent SQUEP requirements. That's, um, they had to be a suitably qualified, experienced person. And, um, and to tick that particular box, we had to have a chartered engineer, you had to have a relevant degree, you had to have an MBA, you had to have nuclear experience, and you had to be um, a member of the Association for Project Management. And I remember getting taken into the office by Bob Nimmo, who was one of the MDs at the time. And Bob says, um, Andy, I'd like you to go to Sellafield and do this particular job. And at the time, I was working down at the Humber Bank on a big pharmaceutical project. And I was enjoying it and we were getting close to, you know, commissioning the plan and I wanted to see it through to a conclusion. And Bob says, no, I want you to go from Hull um, on the East Coast over to Sellafield and do this big job. And I didn't want to do it, I'll be honest with you, Stuart. Um, I didn't really feel confident. I'd never worked in nuclear. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I guess I doubted myself a little bit because this was a real step up for me. And Bob said, look, Andy, you're not my first choice. You're not my second choice. You're probably my third choice here. But the problem is, I need somebody that's got all of these things. I need somebody who's who's chartered. I need somebody who's got a relevant degree, who's got an MBA, who's also a member of the project Association for Project Management, and someone with nuclear experience. Now, my nuclear experience was minimal, but it was enough to tick the box. Apparently, I was the only person in the company that had all of these five things. And um, that's how I ended up at the top of his list. And, mm. and I remember thinking, I really don't want to do this. And, and I actually told him that I wasn't going to do it. And he said, look, Andy, I'll tell you this. I've picked your card out of the deck. And um, this is your opportunity. And this this, this opportunity could take your, your career in a certain direction. If you want, I'll put the card back in the deck. And who knows when it'll come out again. So I hummed and hawed and went home, spoke to my wife, and eventually went back and said to Bob, right, Bob, I'll do it. And um, I'll be honest, Stuart, see, from that point forward, my career completely changed. It took a completely different trajectory. And, and I can trace my appointment to the CEO back to that moment in time. Wow. And it was a really important lesson for me, and it was about you know, taking every opportunity, no matter how challenging, you know, and I, and I tell this to the apprentices now, it's generally the opportunities that take us out of our comfort zone are the ones that stretch us and allow us to learn and grow. And um, I'll be honest, I went to Sellafield, spent four years in Cumbria. I loved it. It was a great project. Um, I found my feet very quickly and I realised that all my fears and concerns were just in my head, you know. Um, that allowed me to come back into the, the home office after after four years and it took I took up my first functional management role. So I took up head of engineering for Renfrew. Right. And I moved on to head of project management before becoming the MD of operations. That led to a, a global exec role in 2010. And I headed up the implementation of a new ERP system across the company and all of its European subsidiaries. That was a really difficult project. Um, Again, it gave me a huge opportunity to learn. It was all about um, reviewing, streamlining and aligning business processes across various countries uh, and organisations and designing these into an Oracle ERP platform. And it required collaboration between UK, Czech Republic, Germany and Poland. 
And that took me three years to complete. And it's probably one of the most challenging periods of my career. But what it did do was it gave me an, an absolute unique insight into almost every part of the company and something that really helped me when I became the CEO. You know, I was heavily involved in re-engineering nearly all of our business processes from procurement, finance, project management, construction processes. And, um, and that was probably one of the biggest learning experiences for me. And, and, and all of that sort of contributed towards, took me a step closer to the CEO role. Thanks for listening to the I Was Going to Charity podcast. I hope you're enjoying this week's episode and this week's guest. I hope you don't mind me asking, but the podcast is part of the I Was Going to Charity and we're always looking for donations to support the musical experiences and presentations which we provide. Every pound donated helps us to try and inspire and motivate the next generation. If you can spare a moment, we'd really appreciate if you could go to our Just Giving website at www.justgiving.com forward slash Tamasgoni. Thanks for your donation and I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, as you just alluded to, you're now, you've came from being an apprentice 37 years ago to, to being the CEO of uh, the Renfrew site, it, it must be tremendous. It must make you feel very proud uh, to have achieved that, despite the fact Mr Higgins told you some years ago that perhaps you might not. Is there any specific careers, highs and lows through the CEO period, something that, that, that really you're very, very proud of uh, there, Andy, and something that you would say that was a low point? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the day I was appointed the CEO of Jason Babcock was the proudest day of my career. I mean, as a, as a local Renfrewshire boy who grew up in Foxborough, um, started an apprentice, worked a whole life in the company, I felt I'd secured my dream job. You know, that was a high. But at the same time, Stuart, it was at the wrong time. Um, I could use the word poison chalice, maybe that comes to mind. You know, when I took over the, the company um, at the end of 2016, the business was in distress. You know, it posted massive losses. Um, we weren't in good shape as a business. In fact, we were in crisis. We were a company that had been too slow to react to the changing business environment around us. We hadn't diversified our business. We'd relied on a shrinking coal market. You know, the company had a lot of... Um, a lot of leaders that were left in the business who had really failed to to act on this and lead us out of the crisis. Um, so as a newly appointed CEO, I, I felt I had my work cut around to turn the, the business around, and that, that's really why I was appointed. It was uh, it was it was to take the company through a business transformation. Oh. Um, and my strategy was quite simple: it was um, survive, sustain, and grow. No. And before I could do anything else, I had to ensure the company's survival, you know, and to do that, there were six key areas of the business that I had to address very quickly. You know, firstly, you know, you've got to look at your cost base. You know, our cost base was not aligned with revenues. In simple terms, our overheads were far too high for the size of the business. And by the end of 2016, our our business overhead was about 15% of turnover. We are a business that will traditionally generate 10 to 12% profit. So our overheads were cannibalizing our margins. You know, we had to reduce overheads and had to make some difficult decisions. You know, I had to reduce our staff headcount significantly and I had to focus on overhead positions, particularly the highly paid managers. So you can imagine after, you know, 
125 years at the time. I was the CEO that shut the Renfrew factory. This was not something that came easy to me. This is where I learned my trade and where many of my friends still worked. But the Renfrew factory was no longer competitive and it was becoming a drain in the company. Um, I had to, you know, design a fit-for-purpose organisation, one that created and drove the right behaviours. Um, you know, I had to refresh our leadership team. Now, talking about business lows, this is probably my biggest low. I asked over 100 of our long-serving managers to leave the company, and many of those guys were close friends and colleagues of mine, some for over 30 years. It was terribly difficult, but it was absolutely necessary for the survival of the business. And what this allowed me to do was undertake a, a general generational refresh and leadership team, bring in driven, motivated leadership. And, and I, I've got a view, I don't care if you've, you've had one year or 30 years experience, my leadership team is based in selecting people who are the absolute best at what they do. You know, there's no favouritism, cronyism or nepotism when it comes to putting you know senior leaders into position. Um, so, you know, that was the big challenges that I had to face in, 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 in basically my first year. Um, we had to look at how we um, transitioned the company away from coal uh, and get us focused on new, growing, sustainable markets. And initially that was getting into things like um, nuclear, into the full nuclear life cycle. So um, decommissioning, maintenance, and now we're into nuclear new build at Hinkley C taking some of those nuclear services and products, taking them overseas into new territories. So we've done that into France and into the Middle East, into Abu Dhabi. They now position the company for, you know, the big opportunity that's faced in the UK and Scotland, which is decarbonisation and net zero opportunities. Just to, just to get back to your question, what are my highs and lows? The, the, the high has certainly been becoming CEO, Stuart, and taking the company through what has been a pretty difficult business transformation and taking it from that survival mode into a company that's now got sustainable um, growth opportunities in front of it. We've got a company that's got a two billion pound order book. Um, we've got a company that's got opportunities, you know, the UK and um, across all of our international territories. And we're, we're really well positioned at the moment to get involved in what I believe will be the green industrial revolution of um, decarbonisation and net zero projects. So that's certainly been a high, but my low has certainly been asking a lot of my colleagues to, to leave the business, you know, back in 2017. That's a tremendous answer, and I really appreciate your, your honesty with regards to that, because it sounds like it's been a, a, a tough challenge. You called it a, a, a poison chalice, but I actually wonder whether that was inadverted commas fate, because successful people that we've interviewed through the face of adversity, they find the way to get through it and they'll lead people through it and they'll find the solutions to be able to get through it. And, you know, we've now done 58 of these uh, podcasts and, and that seems to be very much a strong sense of what we see with successful people is they, they don't inadverted give, give up when adversity occurs, they do the complete opposite. They stand up, 
they have the confidence, they have the competence to be able to deliver, and also they have that ability to be able to take people with them. So congratulations for doing that, uh, Andy, because it's not everybody that can do that. And it's uh, great to hear that the order book is filling up again. And I think the people that uh, perhaps you feel uh, that it was painful for you to let go, I'm, I'm sure they'll reflect and see that it was done for the right reasons. I, I hope so, Stuart, because I really do feel that the, the company has got a different future now. I mean, we're 130 years old in, in July. We we built our heritage is based on the back of coal-fired power stations. We are a big contributor to the climate change crisis that the world faces today. Yeah. You know, you think of Babcock products; they are literally in every country, every corner of the world has a Babcock boiler, yeah. and and they were built to last. You know, some of the boilers that we built back in the 1930s and 40s are still working in some parts of the world today. But um, what what gives me um, real optimism is the opportunity we've now got to, to try and make amends for some of that. You know, the company, we do about 2% coal at the moment, and that's really supporting the very small element of coal that's left in the UK. So, you know, Drax power stations, a couple of coal units, which rarely come on, West Burton, Ratcliffe, and th those will all be off, um, off the bars by 2022. And um, Babcock will have zero um, you know, coal interests at that point. Um, our focus is supporting, you know, UK, supporting Scotland reach their carbon zero targets by 2045 and 2050. And, um, you know, what I'm doing now is is working with some, you know, tier one companies like Siemens, Acker Solutions and others to, you know, work in collaboration to really target some of these big, um, big projects that's coming off. And, and, you know, we've got COP26 happening later this year. I'm sure there'll be lots of announcements made by some of the big um, customers. And um, in the back of those announcements, we'll start to see um, some real progress towards those those projects. But I really do think that um, there's, a, there's a bright future for, you know, any construction company in the UK right now to get involved in these yeah, I agree entirely. We've, we've, we, one of the questions that we ask all our guests, Andy, uh, is that we have a number of different things that are occurring with regards to, you've obviously mentioned COP and the, the renewables and sustainability direction that we're going on. In conjunction with that, we've also had Brexit that we've working, which uh, is increasing the, the, the new trade deals. And I just wondered when we're talking about that, what your, your thoughts are with regards to Brexit and the new trade deals and opportunities for Scotland? There is absolutely there is, and you know, if I'm being honest, we, we're not we're not a type of company, we're not a car company, but we rely on just in time manufacture, and we need components coming in from Europe, you know, that day or that morning. So, you know, our procurement processes tend to be a bit slower. So, if, I be, if I'm being brutally honest, Brexit hasn't affected us significantly at all in any adverse way. I think um, the biggest challenge that, that, that we're going to have as a business is, is, is simply recruiting enough people to execute the work, I think, that's going to be in front of us right now. You know, the world is looking at, um, you know, I'd say, the, I would say not even the UK, the world is looking at the northeast of England and um, the northeast of Scotland and, and how we are going to implement, um, you know, carbon capture uh, technology, hydrogen production technology um, into those areas. And um, 
The amount of activity that we're going to see in the Teesside, the Humber Bank, and perhaps up at Peterhead area is going to be huge. It's going to be significant. And, um, you know, I think for any Scottish company right now um, that wants to get involved in that, it's, the time is now to start positioning themselves. There's going to be some big first-of-a-kind opportunities. You know, I, I, I plan for us to be part of that first-mover community. Um, the question I'm getting from all of the customers right now is, where are you going to get the people? Because UK construction industry is really busy. The government's investing a lot in UK infrastructure to stimulate the economy right now. We're seeing a lot in transport, whether it's high speed two and so forth. We're seeing huge amount of activity at Hinkley, and, and hopefully that will kick off in Sellafield soon. We're hoping that Sellafield, um, you know, C will be um, will be, uh, you know, approved perhaps next year. Seeing lots of activity in Sellafield. So, big challenge that I've got and, and others have got is making sure that we can encourage and attract people into the, uh, the construction industry. And that's not that easy. Um, I think people have got different expectations now, what they want from a career and, you know, working in, in the construction industry is, is is tough, you know, and it requires people to, to travel and sometimes the conditions aren't the best. But as, a, as an industry, we've got to try and make that attractive to people and create an environment, create a salary structure that, that, that allows people to, to want to join us. Uh, that, that sounds tremendous. I mean, it's so exciting to be able to hear that uh, from you, Andy. At the end of the day, the, the, the opportunities there for anybody that wants to do exactly fall in your same footsteps. But the one question that we've also asked, and I think what we've just uh, started the conversation on, the Hunter Foundation released a, a report back in February with regards to how they would see increasing the economy whilst tackling poverty and i just wondered if we could ask you the same question uh, andy yeah i think they, i think they, they go hand in hand to some extent um, Stuart. you know i think if we can create um, you know create quality jobs with the emphasis being on quality jobs which which construction jobs are um you know into into scotland and provide um, paths of employment for for, for youngsters and individuals on some of these long-term um, infrastructure projects, you know, we can address the, the poverty issue at the same time. Andy, you've you've uh, alluded to being well-educated. You've obviously gone through your MBA. And I just wondered if there was any specific books that have inspired you throughout your career. I'll be honest, um, since my MBA, I haven't read any business books, right? And I don't tend to read business books. I don't get a lot out of them, I'll be honest with you. I don't know why. I, I do like reading. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Wilbur Smith fan, a Frederick Forsyth and that type of thing. But um, I don't really get a lot out of reading business books. Um, I tend to surround myself with very good people. Um, and I like to think that every one of my exec team could do my job. It's only by luck rather than design that I'm in the chair. Um, any one of my exec team could um, do the job I'm doing. Um, so I'm really blessed to have a, a really strong team. And um, I always try and, you know, I always try and recruit people that are better than me, if, I, if that makes sense. You know, for me, it's about building a, a highly, a high-performing exec team. And that, that's where I get my ideas and my inspiration. And, and, and also, I draw a lot from people and managers that I've worked with in the past. You know, people will ask you questions like, um, 
you know, what people have inspired you, you know, and, and some people talk about historical figures. For me, it's, for me, the people that inspire me is number one, my dad, you know, first and foremost, he's the hardest working guy I knew, help anyone, generous with his time. And if I, if I can be half the person he was, I'll be happy. And everything I do today, it's about, you know, I always think, would, my, would that make my dad proud? And, 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 and that, that's the way I feel. Um, but there's been other people in my career, you know, managers in this company that you, you might remember, Stuart, guys like Alan Robertson, yeah. um, Willie Gill, Ian Donnelly. These are people that wouldn't mean much to your listeners, but these are people that, that were very influential in my career. They were almost mentors to me. And I've learned a lot, a little bit off all of them. And um, that, that's where I draw my inspiration and, and my ideas from. Yeah, it's great to hear, and I can understand your inspiration from Alan Robertson. He was a, an absolute gent of a, a, a chap yeah. when he was in Babcock's. He, he taught me an awful lot throughout my time. I remember Alan back in project engineering when I was in project management, but uh, yeah. I've, I've uh, lost touch with him over the last couple of years, but he was a, an absolute gent. Uh, Andy, you'll be pleased to hear this is the last question. Uh, yeah. And that is a question that we, we ask all our guests, and that's what's the best piece of advice that you've been given and what piece of advice would you pass on to the next generation? I visit, I visit my apprentices at Tipton a couple of times a year and I always give the new intakes the same piece of advice and there's five things and I don't like dispensing advice but the way I, the way I badge it up is these are five things that have worked for me and have helped shape my career and um, if people want to listen to them and use them then great but, but five things, work hard, it doesn't matter how smart you are. There's no substitute for hard work. I'm rarely the smartest guy in the room. I, I know that. Um, there's very few people that will work me. And I always believe that hard work beats a smart person. But if you can be smart and work hard as well, then you're, that's a real winner. But really, strong work ethic. Over-deliver. Second thing. You know, and anything that I've ever been asked to do, I don't just do what I'm asked. I always go that extra mile. I'm always trying to differentiate myself against my peers and I think that's helped me in my, in my way up um, through the through my career it's just over delivering everything you're asked to do third thing was you know set yourself big goals and stay focused on them don't limit your horizons and if I go back to the discussion I had with John Higgins you know I was a young apprentice six months into my career and I thought I could run the company and he was trying to limit my expectations and horizons by saying, look, if you work hard, son, you can be a, a charge hand. And if I'd listened to him, I'm sure I'd be a happy charge hand. But I set myself bigger goals, and, and, and that's what I tell all of my apprentices. And then the fourth thing is just take every opportunity, and maybe that example I gave you earlier, whereby, you know, the opportunities that take you out of your comfort zone, the ones that stretch you are the ones that allow you to grow the most. And you'll never regret you know, taking an opportunity. You, you, you could often regret not taking an opportunity. And the last one, maybe maybe Alan Robertson taught me this one, but, you know, treat everybody you work with respectfully, you know, and I try to do that. I try to be respectful to everybody I meet. doesn't matter where they are in the organisation. You know, you can't do anything on your own. You need to leverage your network, whether that's internal to the company or external. And I think if you treat everyone the way you want to be treated, um, you know, you can rely on people to be there when you need them to, to help you get things done. So I guess that's the five things that have worked for me, Stuart. 
Great advice, Andy Calhoun. Thanks for joining us here on the I Was Going to Podcast. But it's been absolutely fantastic speaking to you this morning. Thanks very much. Well, thanks, Stuart. Thank you.